A few years ago, I was sitting with my barber for the very first time. We're getting to know each other. And you, you know that relationship between you and your barber? That's a sacred relationship. Your life is literally in their hands. And so we're just getting to know each other. He's sharing a little bit about his life. I'm sharing a little bit about my life. And somehow we get into this conversation about this crazy party that he was at the weekend before. He's like, man, I got pissed face drunk. I smoked so many blunts. I had the most effing amazing time. And he's sharing all this. And somehow our conversation steers to, so Mickey, like, what do you do? What do you do for a living? What do you do for work? I was like, I'm a pastor. And I kid you not, something in that moment, the atmosphere shifted. And I kid you not, he did something like this. He's like, I'm so sorry for cussing. I'm so sorry for getting drunk and getting high. I'm like, you don't need to do that. He starts repenting. And it made me think, man, this guy must not interact with a lot of Christians. He must not know a lot of Christians in his life. In a city like ours, it seems like Christians have become this rare breed of shiny Pokemon that that not many people interact with or see. And maybe you've experienced something similar. Someone asks you, hey, what are your plans for this weekend? Oh, I'm going to church. Oh, Cool. So what that what's that like? Or maybe someone asks, hey, you know that person you went on a date with last week? Like, did you guys have sex? Like, how did it go? And you say, no, I'm actually saving myself for marriage. I'm a virgin. <gasps> a virgin? Who does that these days? Right? Living in a city like ours, it seems to be that Christianity is becoming less and less a majority and more the minority. It's official. I believe that we are living in a post-Christian era. We have shifted from a culture heavily influenced by Christianity to a post-Christian culture. And I don't mean that America was a Christian nation. I actually don't believe that America was ever a Christian nation, especially when our country was built on the slavery and oppression of others. What I mean to say is that for a long time, America was Christianized, where our culture was heavily influenced by Christian values and ethics. And I believe for the first time in American history, Christians have shifted from the majority to the now minority. In fact, the fastest growing religious segments of society today, they're called the nuns. Not N-U-N, N-O-N-E-S, the nuns. And a nun is someone who claims to be spiritual but not religious. So they're not Christian or Buddhist or Muslim. They're a nun. In fact, in a recent study, only 23% of people living in San Francisco identify as Christian. And of that 23%, who knows how many people actually practice their faith or go to church? This is our city's spiritual landscape. But not only is culture no longer influenced much by Christianity, but now there seems to be a growing disdain for the Christian faith. Right, where even just a few decades ago, Christians were generally well respected. Even as late as the 90s, the word Christian had overwhelmingly positive connotations. Christian values and beliefs were considered a high standard of morality. But now Christians are those weirdos who don't like to have sex before marriage, who give away all their money, who worship and submit their lives to an invisible guy who died 2,000 years ago and came back to life. Now Christians seem to be the butt of the joke in mainstream media. To be fair, some of us deserve it. And for some, Christians are viewed as dangerous, as racist, 
sexist, bigoted, pretentious, snobby, hypocritical. And to be fair, they're not completely wrong. Living in a city like San Francisco, maybe you felt this tension in your workplace, in your classroom, in your spin class or at the gym. There's this hesitation that you have in letting people know that you're a follower of Jesus. You look over your shoulder during mealtime when you want to pray. You're embarrassed to share about what you actually believe. You're embarrassed to share that you're a virgin, that you're saving yourself for marriage. And maybe you felt this tension in your own faith where you feel the clash between our culture's values and the way of Jesus. The world says instant gratification. Don't withhold any pleasure from yourself. But God says delayed gratifications. There are some things that are worth waiting for. The world says cancel those you disagree with. But Jesus says love your enemies. The world says retaliate. But Jesus says forgive. So now we are Christians living in a post-Christian era. Our culture has moved from a positive to a negative view of followers of Jesus. And now we are thought of at best weird or at worst dangerous. We are no longer the majority of our culture. We are now the minority. And there's no closer parallel to our cultural moment in the Old Testament than the book of Daniel. And there's no metaphor that best captures us right now in the Bible than the metaphor of exile. In the book of Daniel, we find Israel conquered, displaced, and in exile, taken from their homes, living in foreign lands, very much the minority in the new cultures they found themselves in, trying to find their way and hold firm to their faith. We see that all throughout scripture, the metaphor of exile is used whenever followers of Jesus are a minority in a culture where the dominant values are alien or even hostile to the ways of Jesus. And isn't that what we're experiencing right now? In a world that's straying further and further away from the way of Jesus, how do we hold firm to our faith? How do we be the church in a post-Christian world? How do we engage culture without being compromised and continue to be effective witnesses? I believe that we are called to be what authors like John Tyson and Jonathan Sachs call a creative minority. And so this is what we will be exploring together through this collection. We'll be hearing from members within our community as we talk about what is the church and how are we called to be the church in this cultural moment. And so before we dive into today's word, let me open us with a word of prayer. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you for being with us here today. And God, as we navigate this topic, as we talk about who we're called to be in a city like ours, at a time like ours, in a culture like ours, I pray that you would give us clarity, wisdom, that Holy Spirit, you would speak to our hearts. And so we open up to receive from you today. We love you, God. Would you meet us in this place? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we Grapple with how we're to call, how we're called to respond in this cultural moment. We're going to look to the book of Daniel. So we're going to start with Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. And this is how it goes. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. 
And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. And so here we find in the story, Israel finds itself conquered and the people are now displaced. The people find themselves in exile, taken from their home and brought into foreign lands. Now, the thing we have to understand about Babylon, Babylon was the most powerful civilization in the ancient world at that time. At the time, it was the largest city at 2,500 acres. Its walls were 80 feet thick, 320 feet high, and 56 miles long. I mean, just for context, San Francisco is 7 by 7 miles big, right? So it was huge. And in the Bible, Babylon isn't just a city. It's actually an archetype. And so we find the origin story of Babylon in Genesis with the Tower of Babel. There's that iconic line, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. And so that's the driving ambition of Babylon to build a society apart from God, a society that worships self instead of creator, a society that has no need for Yahweh. And so wherever we see Babylon, it's actually an archetype that we see throughout the Bible. Rome becomes the new Babylon. And you know what? To drive this point home, the epicenter of Babylon was this huge tower-shaped temple called Etebenanki. It's an Akkadian word meaning house of the foundations of heaven and earth. The spirit of Babel, we can reach the heavens on our own without God. You see, most of the cities in the ancient world were built around the tallest building or the tallest tower or the tallest temple. And that tallest building was always the temple of the God that the whole city worshipped. And it makes you think, what's the tallest building here in San Francisco? It's the Salesforce Tower. And they know it, right? When they first built that tall building, they, they projected the eye of, you know, the Lord of the Rings, the eye of Saruman. And they just know, they, they just fit that role. And what does it tell us, though, about what we here in San Francisco worship? We worship money. We worship success. And we live in a society straying further and further away from the need for God. What am I trying to say? Babylon is alive here today. And I believe many of us believe that Babylon is now embodied in America. And so we're living in it right now. And this is the nation that conquered Israel. If we go on to verse 3, then the king ordered Asphenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. If you need a dating app profile, this is it. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. So these four men from Judah are our main characters, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. 
And they were plucked from their homes and they were brought into Babylon's cultural reprogramming boot camp. Right? The goal was to completely recondition them to lay down their Jewish culture and to adopt Babylon's culture. They even went so far as changing their names from Hebrew names to Babylonian names. And the goal wasn't them for them just to learn about Babylon. It was for them to become a Babylonian. And as the minority, Daniel and his friends were facing constant pressure to become like the Babylonians. I think it's safe to say that most of us understand what it's like to be a minority. I know my high school experience, I went to an all-boys Catholic high school where about 95% of the students were white. I swear I was one of maybe three Koreans that attended the entire school at that time. There was only one black kid in our entire class, right? It was completely white and male-centric. And I remember feeling this constant pressure as a minority, as the other, to assimilate and to adopt the dominant culture. I remember feeling the pressure. You know, they would make fun of Asians and minorities. And I remember for a long time, I hated my own Asianness, And I felt this pressure to also make fun of minorities, to make fun of my own culture, to hate it because I wanted to be like them and be accepted by them. I remember so many of our my fellow classmates sexualized our female teachers and I felt this pressure to be braggadocious and do the same thing. And it's this pressure to adopt the way of the majority. And see, as modern day believers... I believe that we are facing this constant pressure to adopt the dominant culture of our society. I mean, don't you feel the pressure living in a city like San Francisco? The pressure to be successful, the pressure to appear a certain way, the pressure to indulge literally everything is at our fingertips with the push of a button on our apps. And this is what Daniel and his friends were facing there in Babylon. And the question is how did they respond to the mounting pressure of Babylon? And how do we as believers in modern day society respond to mounting pressure from our Babylon? Now, there are two ways that we shouldn't respond. The first is separatism. Like a turtle, you tuck your head in your shell, you hide from the big bad world, and you wait till Jesus comes again. I mean, think of the Amish, fully disconnected from the world, a hiding place. Church becomes a place to escape to, a refuge from the world, a hiding place from culture. And there's this fear of engaging with culture with the secular world. And so... When we enter into separatism, we surround ourselves with only Christian things. I'm only going to listen to Christian music, only read Christian books, Christian radio station, Christian friends, Christian school, Christian coffee shop, Christian dating app. And there's no engagement with the outside world that God has called us to reach. And there's even this visceral outrage and condemnation of secular things that we fear will corrupt us. I mean, in the early 2000s, it was the anti-Harry Potter gang, right? There were hordes of parents who were burning Harry Potter books. We need to keep our kids away from these demonic Harry Potter books. They're going to grow up to become wizards and practice witchcraft. And I say, really? I mean, I loved Harry Potter growing up, and I'm a pastor, right? By the way, apparently, apparently... Um, Harry Potter, liking Harry Potter isn't cool anymore. Gen Zers make fun of us for sorting ourselves into the Harry Potter houses. By the way, I am house Hufflepuff. Any Hufflepuffs out there? 
Let's go. Right? Apparently now we're not cool anymore. But don't forget, the boomers were actually burning Harry Potter's books, right? Today, maybe it's the reaction that Christians are having to Lil Nas X's Satan shoes, right? This visceral outrage and disconnection from the world, separatism, disconnecting from culture and hiding from the world. So we're not to respond in that way. But the second way I think is even more pervasive is syncretism, right? We're like a chameleon. We start to blend in and start to look like everyone else. You begin being molded by culture instead of being formed by Jesus. And soon you find there's absolutely no difference in the way that you live between you and your non-Christian coworker. Your lives look exactly the same. And instead of being called out and set apart from the world for the world, we've become just like the world. We lose our saltiness, the very thing that makes us effective witnesses to the good news of Jesus. Our faith becomes watered down and muddied. We no longer hold the way of Jesus as the highest authority in our lives. And I got to say, I got to say this one thing. Some of us are discipled more by the Instagram influencers that we follow than by Jesus. And that includes Christian influencers too. You know how I know that? Because we spend more time reading Instagram quotes than we do the Bible. We spend more time on Twitter than in prayer. What does it say say about our faith when our theologies have been formed more by social media posts than by the very word of God? By the way, I got to say, if God completely agrees with every part of your life, I hate to break it to you, but you're not following God anymore. You're following yourself. And so there's this danger of syncretism, of adopting the culture's way and forsaking the way of Jesus. And so we see that separatism is not the way and syncretism is not the way. So what do we do? Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who coined the term creative minority, says this, you can be a minority living in a country whose religion, culture, and legal system are not your own, and yet sustain your identity, live your faith, and contribute to the common good exactly as Jeremiah said. It isn't easy. It demands a complex finessing of identities. It involves a willingness to live in a state of cognitive dissonance. It isn't for the faint-hearted, but it is creative. There's a third way. It's what authors like John Tyson and Rabbi Jonathan Sachs call being a creative minority. John Tyson has a fantastic book about this. This is how he defines a creative minority. A creative minority is a Christian community in a web of stubbornly loyal relationships. Love that. Knotted together in a living network of persons who are committed to practicing the way of Jesus together for the renewal of the world. A people stubbornly loyal to one another despite our differences, despite our conflicts, despite our preferences, despite all the things that would divide us in the world, stubbornly loyal to one another, just like Daniel and his friends were, who are committed to practicing the way of Jesus, more important than being accepted and fitting in, more important than being successful and making lots of money, more important than finding the love of your life, practicing the way of Jesus at the core. Why? 
together for the renewal of the world, not running away or hiding from the world, but stepping into it to renew it, to bring peace where there is no peace, to bring justice where there is injustice, to bring love where there is hatred, contributing to the common good of not just the church, but the city in which we live. Listen, San Francisco should be a better place to live because we're there. This is the calling of the creative minority. This is what we as the church living in a post-Christian world are called to be, a creative minority. John Tyson says, to become a creative minority is not easy because it involves maintaining strong links with the outside world while staying true to your faith, seeking not merely to keep the sacred flame burning, but also to transform the larger society of which you are a part. Come on, how many of you feel that tension where you want to keep that sacred flame of faith burning, but you also want to be relevant? You want to, you want to impact society, and sometimes they seem like they're exclusive, but they're actually two sides of the same coin in being a creative minority. And this is what Daniel and his friends embodied. Why don't we go on? Verse 8, the story continues. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord, the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and drink and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. Now, the royal food was no joke. I mean, it was the finest food in the land with choice meat and expensive wine. And the reason why they wanted Daniel and his friends to eat the royal food was that they could, so that they could be strong and healthy enough to be good servants. And so they're saying, our food is the best. It will make you the strongest and the brightest that you can be. Listen, how many of you know that Babylon always offers empty promises. Our culture offers you happiness and satisfaction. Our culture offers you freedom. Our culture offers you peace and joy. Just eat what we give you. Live like us. Be like us. But it never delivers. Listen, church, I've seen people indulge in total freedom, sleeping around with whoever they want, only to find themselves completely lost and empty. I've seen people kill themselves to climb the corporate ladder only to find themselves completely unsatisfied and unfulfilled. Babylon will always offer what it cannot give. But Daniel resolved. Daniel resolved not to defile himself. Daniel refused to adopt Babylon's culture, which is syncretism. But Daniel also refused to look away and hide separatism. His response, he became a vegan. 
right? The most like, re- likely reason why he denied the royal food was because it wasn't kosher and it would violate their laws regarding food, you know, the covenant they had with God. And so instead he said, let's try it our way. Let's, uh, let us prove that God's ways are truly higher. Let us show you that God can give us what you cannot. And you might be looking at this story and say, okay, Daniel just denied food. That's such a small thing. Okay, maybe for you, but not for me, right? It's not that big of a deal. He just denied some good food. Like, is that really that big of a, a leap of faith or a step in obedience? We forget that chapters later, Daniel was facing the lion's den and that his friends were facing the fiery furnace. Hear me, church, small acts of obedience always pave the way for big acts of obedience. And in the same way, small acts of compromise always pave the way for bigger acts of compromise. I mean, for many of us, this pandemic revealed a lot about our spiritual health, didn't it? Right? When the crutches of Sunday gatherings, live worship music, in-person fellowship were taken away, what were we left with? For many of us, we had to reckon with the fact that without those things, our relationship with God was virtually non-existent. Those small disciplines of reading the word when you don't feel like it, when no one is watching, or praying when you feel like binging, binging Netflix instead, they all matter. And they matter for the big moments when our faith is tested and when our lives are interrupted. And so Daniel says, I refuse, I resolve not to be compromised, even in the smallest way, even just tasting this food, which wouldn't be that big of a deal. I refuse, I resolve not to take it. And perhaps what we need in our day are believers who resolve not to bow to culture or run away from it, but resolve to follow the way of Jesus At any cost, even when the world is offering its best food and wine, even when the world is offering their version of happiness and satisfaction, perhaps what we need are modern day Daniels who will say to the world, let us show you how good it is to follow our God. And so this is how the story concludes in verse 14. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. By the way, this was not a result of veganism. It was the Holy Spirit. Okay. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. So these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them. He found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Wow. God gave them knowledge and understanding into the literature and learning of who? Of the Babylonians. God gave them insight and influence into culture. In fact, it says the king talked with them and found none equal. 
I think there's this misconception that in order to win the world, we have to become like the world, that we have to compromise our values and beliefs to become relevant. This is absolutely not true. I love Survivor. One of my favorite Survivor contestants of all time was actually a man from the Bay Area named Yule. He's this Asian guy who joined the cast, I forget, a few seasons ago. I think it was over a decade ago. And what people love Yule because of how different he was. You know, the, the game is literally about cheating, about lying, about backstabbing. But, but the thing about Yule's game was he tried his best to play with the utmost, utmost integrity. And it showed. And he actually ended up winning the entire game. He showed all of Survivor a better way. Not because he was the same, but because he chose to be different. Listen, as we follow the way of Jesus and remain committed to him, he begins giving us insight and influence into the culture. Church, hear me. We cannot lose our prophetic edge. We cannot lose the thing that makes us different, that makes us so appealing and salty to the world. Our message to the world has been and will always be there's a better way of living, a new order of things, and it's called the kingdom of God. And this is the beautiful thing. Daniel's presence in Babylon made the city a better place. And you would think that someone refusing to bow or assimilate to the culture, you would think someone like that wouldn't have much influence over a city like Babylon. But it says they contributed to the common good. His wisdom and understanding began influencing the very culture that was trying to indoctrinate them. This is what it means to live as a creative minority, not to enter into syncretism and adopt all of the culture's ways, not to enter into separatism, hiding and separating yourself from it, but to dive deep into it and remain fervently loyal to the way of Jesus, to resolve to follow him and no one else. At the double API rally we were at a few weeks ago, Jane's old professor, Professor Russell Jung, gave one of the most compelling speeches of the rally. And he said something that I never heard in my entire life before. He said, embrace your foreignness. And he was explaining how America was never made as a home for people like you and I. And he was saying the greatest gift that we as minorities can offer to the Western church is the gift of our foreignness. Because without our stories, without our experiences, how can the church ever understand God's heart for the outsider, for the foreigner, for the immigrant, for the, for the one that Jesus leaves the 99 for without our perspective of living in a place that is not our home? How can the church ever understand what it's like to long for God's kingdom to come? See, I think we forget that the church was actually born anti-empire. What I mean by that was they weren't the conquerors. They were the conquered. They weren't the people in power. They were the oppressed. They weren't the majority. They were very much the minority. But we see that somewhere in history, that actually changed and it flipped. The church became the people in power. The church became the colonizers and the conquerors. And now the majority of the Western church only understands faith through the lens of empire. It's why most of our worship songs that happen to be written by white people are all about victory, are all about conquering and overcoming, because that's all they've known. 
And this is why our foreignness is a gift to the body of Christ. We have the unique perspective that the early church had, understanding hardship, understanding oppression, understanding persecution, understanding waiting and lament, understanding what it's like to be the foreigner and the outsider. Embrace your foreignness was a message to the Asian community, but I also believe it's a prophetic message to the wider body of Christ. Embrace your foreignness. Embrace the fact that you are not citizens of this world, but you're citizens of heaven, of a coming kingdom that will set all things right. Embrace a way of life so radically different from the world that it looks like foolishness. That it looks like utter stupidity. Show the world a better way. Show the world that following our God is the best way to live life. Embrace your foreignness. Church, we are in exile. Church, we are a creative minority. I hear so many people say it's hard to be a follower of Jesus in a city like San Francisco. It is. I mean, I know so many pastors that, that, that have come and left burnt out. I know so many believers who are struggling to keep their faith in a city like ours. And don't get me wrong, I love pastoring in a city like ours. I could not pastor in the burbs. I mean, I've learned so much pastoring in San Francisco. I've been challenged to grow in so many ways, and I'm so thankful for a city like ours. But it's naive to think that we can get all the best parts of the culture in a city like ours, without also having to deal with the worst parts. We're naive to think that culture isn't influencing us only in a positive way, but also in a negative way. How do we do it? How do we be the church in a city like ours at a time like ours? It's going to take resolve. It's going to take a community of people who are stubbornly loyal to one another, who will stand as a creative minority committed to remaining in the city and bringing renewal. I believe at this hour, God is raising people in San Francisco who don't just look at San Francisco like, you know, a a, a a stepping stool to the next phase of their career or just a Porsche. I believe God is raising people up in San Francisco who are saying, this is my Babylon. This is a city that God has called me to. And I'm called to be planted here. And I'm called to bring about the renewal of this city to contribute to its common good and to be a follower of Jesus as a creative minority. Listen, church, I believe it's possible not only to thrive as a believer in San Francisco, but to see revival in our city. I believe it's possible. Come on, if the gospel doesn't work in San Francisco, it's not a gospel I want to follow. It has to work here. It worked for Daniel in his Babylon, and why can't it work for us in our Babylon? I believe that God is doing it. But first, I believe that God is calling us to repent of our separatism and our syncretism? In what areas have you compromised to culture where you felt this tension between the ways of the world and the ways of Jesus and you relented to the world? In what areas have you allowed compromise, even in the smallest of ways, to enter into your heart? Or maybe on the other end of the spectrum, in what areas have you decided to run and hide from instead of engaging? 
What have you turned a blind eye toward here in our city? Maybe it's racial injustice. Maybe it's homelessness. In what ways have you separated yourself from our culture and from our city out of fear or out of hesitation? I believe that in this hour, God is stirring resolve to choose the way of Jesus over the way of the world and to stay and engage a culture that doesn't want us. Right now, I want to enter into a time of response. And so, will you close your eyes with me, church? I believe that God is calling us to repent of the ways that we have entertained separatism and syncretism. And so right now, I just want you to dialogue with God. God, have I compromised? Have I chosen the ways of our culture, of our world, over the ways of Jesus? Are there any areas where I need to repent, where I need to change the way I'm thinking, where I need to change my perspective or my heart posture? Or maybe you are guilty of separatism. God, are there any things that I've turned a blind eye toward? Are there any ways that I've demonized our city? where I have said, this city is too corrupt. I, I don't, I just have to just stay away and hide in my refuge. I can't engage with it out of fear, out of hesitation, out of hurt. Are there ways that you've run from the culture that you have called to engaged? Right now, why don't you dialogue with God and say, God, what are the areas in my life that I need to repent of? And as you repent, I want you today to make a resolve. God, I resolve to be a creative minority in our post-Christian world. God, I resolve to follow the ways of Jesus over every other way of culture. God, I resolve to choose you above everything else. God, I resolve to stay even when it gets hard. God, I resolve to love my city, to impact my city, even when the world is telling me that our city is hopeless. God, I make a resolution to our Babylon to be here, to bring about your renewal, to bring about your kingdom, and to show the city a better way. God, we thank you for what you're doing Would you continue working in our hearts as we continue in this series? Would you continue teaching us what the church is and what it means to be the church in this cultural moment? We love you, God. We thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.